Good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to viewers and listeners, wherever you might be on planet Earth here. Uh, we have the distinct pleasure today <clears throat> to focus on a country that has been at the center of civilization and recorded history of humanity uh, since time immemorial, namely uh, Iraq. And we will have the ambassador of Iraq to the United States as a resource specialist for this seminar, this webinar. And <clears throat> we'll have Colonel David DeRoche as a moderator. But Iraq is a country that has been in the crosshairs <clears throat> of America's foreign relations uh, for generations. Uh, but for decades now, uh, with regard to strife and tension and issues pertaining to regional security, regional defense, uh, regional stability, and people's prospects for prosperity and the ongoing quest for modernization uh, and development. <clears throat> Iraq has been seen all too often by all too many people <clears throat> more as an object something to be controlled, to be influenced uh, on the sordid side, perhaps to be manipulated and exploited in terms of markets and sales and training and equipment <clears throat> and edging out uh, or precluding those kinds of advantages, strategic advantages and economic gains that other great powers, middle powers and uh, additional kinds of powers would like to have for themselves. And it's less seen as an actor. All countries are objects in some ways, uh, given their geography or their geostrategic position, their geopolitical situation, their economic situation, their financial situation, uh, their defense situation. Iraq has all of these. Uh, but Iraq as an actor is far, far less well understood. And many people uh, view Iraq as the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia and ancient times, uh, which has ongoing relevance, uh, but it is blessed with two rivers. And it's in a region where there are some countries that haven't a single river, not one stream, not one river, not one brook, not one pond, not one pool. Uh, so Iraq's potential has always been vast in terms of agriculture, for example, and yet it's mostly seen by many as a gas station, not as a country with an extraordinarily rich culture and civilization that has contributed to the betterment of all of humankind. Uh, these were the first settlements, the first uh, codified legal systems, uh, the first uh, diplomatic uh, uh, structures and systems. Uh, we're much indebted to the people of Iraq, to the country of Iraq, not just in the bilateral relationship, not just for itself, but its role in regional and world affairs. Uh, Ambassador Farid Yassin has been posted to the United States for just under six years. And prior to that, he was Iraq's ambassador to France uh, for six years. Uh, but he entered the diplomatic service in 2004 and served as the director of the policy planning department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and also as an advisor to former 
uh, Deputy uh, Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi. Uh, Colonel DeRoche uh, is an associate professor of the Department of Defense, National Defense uh, University. He's formerly uh, Director of Defense and Policy Planning for all six of the GCC countries, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the United uh, Arab Emirates, as well as Yemen. In addition to that, he's been a national council and still is a national council senior international affairs fellow and alumnus of the national council's Malone faculty fellow in specialist programs in Syria. He's an Arab and Islamic studies fellow there. The National Council has sent more than 400 American leaders to Syria, half of them academics, plus some congressional staff, and the other half students, those who constitute what we believe are the American uh, generation of tomorrow's uh, leaders who will be tasked with managing this relationship. We turn now, though, to Ambassador Farid Yassin, Iraq's ambassador to the United States. Mr. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Well, Dr. Anthony, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Colonel, I'm very happy to be with you. I uh, want to start by saying that uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, you hosted me in person at what I think was my last activity um, uh, in person. <clears throat> And so uh, as uh, we're, we're proceeding and trying gradually to get out of the, uh, this, uh, this pandemic, I, I, I'm, you know, I see some positive sign in being, being here sort of have helped me bookend uh, the, uh, uh, the, COVID, the COVID phase. Uh, at the same time, uh, the fact that we're doing this online uh, will allow us to reach out and interact with m many more people, um, uh, you know, intelligently with a back and forth, uh, thanks to the wonders of uh, technology. Um, so thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, uh, thank you for, you know, your, your, your uh, uh, actually accurate description of Iraq. Uh, I don't know what I can say to add to it, except to say that uh, Iraq is truly a, an old country, uh, you know, which has layers and layers of civilization. Uh, and so therefore it is, is, it is quite complex. Um, it, it's uh, the, the, the one complaint that I've had about the way Iraq has been described and discussed and analyzed is that sometimes the approach has been a little too reductive. You know, when people talk about Iraq being made up of, you know, Shias, uh, Arab Shias, Arab Sunnis and Kurds, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. There are much more gradations and differences within these very same com communities than sometimes across them. And this is actually something that we are seeing right now in our own politics. And that's something I wanted to talk about. Uh, uh, one thing that uh, often tends to get overlooked is that since we've had a regime change in 2003, uh, we have uh, gone through, uh, I think, six elections uh, that have been recognized to be uh, fair and open, um, sometimes problematic, but um, increasingly less so. Um, uh, our last elections, for example, had uh, the largest monitoring group ever sent by the United Nations, and you know they gave it gave it a a, a decent, pretty good you know a bill of health. 
Um, of course, uh, unfortunately, the participation rate wasn't what we had expected. But uh, the really interesting thing about those last elections is that they showed that we were we are moving towards politics. Uh, main characteristics of these last elections was that uh, the electoral commission and parliament, in fact, had enacted a new electoral law, uh, breaking uh, up Iraq from 18 different electoral districts into 83 much smaller districts, which in a sense uh, favored parties that had uh, you know, a better local uh, presence and could play the electoral uh, game better than the others. And so we saw a, a, uh, a huge shift in the composition of the, uh, of the next uh, parliament. The results are actually in the process of being certified uh, before. And, and the one thing that I'm, that I'm really proud to report and insist upon, and I've said this way back when in 2009, in fact, to some prominent journalists who, uh, quoted me without naming me, is that the one thing that I'm proud about to say about Iraqi uh, elections is that you don't know ahead of time who is going to win, um, which, uh, you know, uh, is part of the game. So that's one thing we're, we're, we're very proud of. And in these elections, uh, what we are seeing is, a, is an evolution of uh, our politics from what we used to be called, we used to call um, horizontal uh, coalitions. Uh, so uh, coalitions early in the early days of the of the elections in 2004, 2005, that sort of be that used to be centered on um, ethnic identity, uh, sectarian identity, increasingly moving towards what we call vertical uh, alliances and coalitions, which uh, group people from various communities, ethnic, uh, religious, uh, sectarian, but uh, with the same political outlook. Um, as, as it should be, in fact. Um, and so oh, we, uh, as, we, as we stand right now, we're waiting for the results to be certified. We will have, uh, once the elections are certified, we'll be on a constitutionally mandated timeline to elect a, a president of parliament. And then a, uh, who will, uh, parliament will then elect a uh, president of the Republic who will then, uh, again, according to a preset constitutionally mandated timeline, appoint somebody to be uh, or designate somebody to be uh, the next prime minister who will then have, a, I think, a month or so to uh, bring the government to parliament to be approved. And so that, that, this is where we are. Um, uh, other than that, uh, as you know, we are in a phase uh, that is post-conflict. We have had uh, a tough ride. You know, I remember in, in, I was in Paris in 2014 when uh, Mosul fell and uh, a big chunk of the country was occupied by ISIS, uh, which actually created their own country, um, uh, their own governance, uh, taxes, uh, armies, uh, you know, instruments of, of control. Uh, all that is in the past. Uh, we have liberated Iraq already uh, a, few, uh, uh, a few years ago. In fact, uh, on, on December 10th, we celebrated two events. The first was the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the state of Iraq, granted under the uh, United Nations mandate, but as a, as an, as a, as a compact, well-defined uh, state with a head of state, um, King Faisal I, um, who was uh, one of those 
now unknown, but great leaders of the, the early 20th century. Um, and also we celebrated the uh, uh, anniversary, fourth anniversary, sorry, of the uh, liberation of Iraq and the ter territorial defeat of ISIS. Um, in terms of where Iraq stands, well, as you know, uh, as I said, we are uh, an old country, very proud of our culture. In fact, uh, thank you for uh, uh, Dr. Anthony for mentioning our, our, our historical heritage. One of the things I'm most proud of is that thanks to the cooperation of US authorities, we were able to return to Iraq a huge number of artifacts that had been smuggled out of, uh, out of, out of Iraq and other countries and eventually came to this country. I think um, something like 17,000 pieces were returned a few months ago uh, to Iraq um, and welcomed. Um, uh, the other thing that I will say um, uh, has to do with um, our work for the future. Um, but before that, let me talk about the politics, the regional politics. Um, thank you, Dr. Anthony, for pointing uh, out the fact that Iraq is an actor. Uh, very often we, you know, uh, we're often treated as sort of a subject. I remember at one, one, uh, one conference I was uh, in the preparatory phases of, uh, this was the EU-US conference on Iraq back in 2005. Um, uh, my instructions from my minister was that Iraq had to have a seat at the main table with the United States and with, uh, with the EU. And uh, some of the organizers actually wanted Iraq to sit down um, amongst the various participants, as if we were a subject on in, in a conference that and not part of the decision makers, and uh, uh, rightly so, the the foreign minister refused, and eventually we got a seat at the table between uh, the, the the prime minister. I think it was Kofi uh, Annan, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, and and the uh, the. Um, EU and US representatives. Um, so the point that I'd like to underline is that Iraq has agency. We are the ones who decide our future. And in fact, uh, we are doing more than deciding our future. Uh, it has been reported in the press that over the last uh, few years uh, or a few months rather, Iraq has uh, had a critical role in bringing together uh, regional players who are at odds so Iraq, in a sense, is playing the role of a, uh, of a peacemaker. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, I, I welcome as a diplomat as, and as an Iraqi. Um, but I have to tell you that uh, uh, we have serious issues looming ahead. Um, uh, Dr. Anthony mentioned the fact that Iraq is known as the land of the two rivers, something we're externally proud of. Uh, what I'll say is that let's keep it that way. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because, uh, you know, Iraq is a country that is subject to uh, climate change and is a water-stressed country. Um, um, our, our misfortune is that uh, the, the sources of our water are upstream, if you will. So when countries who are upstream, um, uh, you know, build dams, <laughs> it, it affects you. Um, and it's, just, it's not a problem that, that, is, uh, that is uniquely Iraqi. You, you, find, you find the same problems in Africa, in Asia, uh, even in the United States. And so this is a problem, I think, that can only be resolved, um, uh, you know, in, uh, in conjunction with, uh, with neighbors and uh, uh, in, in international authorities, uh, with the support of the international authorities. Uh, 
The other thing that I'll add to this is that Iraq is uh, a, a victim uh, of climate change. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, in fact, last year, the uh, Washington Post published an article talking about huge heat waves in, in Baghdad, where temperatures uh, on successive days exceeded 50 degrees centigrade, uh, mentioning the fact that uh, Baghdad could be in fact, a uh, template for future of Iraq of American cities uh, on, under climate change. So this is a serious issue for us. Uh, I, I, I actually just came back last month from uh, spending two weeks in uh, in Glasgow uh, at the at the climate change conference. Uh, we've had a very active team there. Um, we are in a difficult situation because. We are subject to climate change. We will. We are suffering from the consequences of it. You know, desertification, water scarcity, uh, and so on. But also, we will be affected by any measures that will be taken to deal with climate change, and so-called mitigation. The the um, any any um, reductions in the use of uh, fossil fuels will affect us because our budget essentially derives from um, exports of uh, fossil fuels. So uh, we will have to uh, focus our attention very acutely on uh, these issues, uh, transforming our, uh, uh, our economy into uh, clean energies, finding alternatives and alternative sources of revenue uh, nationally um, other than uh, fossil fuels. And uh, in fact, this is something that we cannot do on our own. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, a project and an, an enterprise that will need the collaboration of all our neighbors and all of us. And uh, in truth, uh, uh, of all the uh, economic actors that can interact with, uh, with Iraq, uh, and I'm thinking in particular of the uh, private sector in the United States, uh, without whom I don't think we can, we stand a good chance of uh, altering and uh, improving and uh, modifying our economy uh, to uh, address these uh, coming challenges, which are all the more acute because of uh, the fact that Iraq has a growing population, a youth bulge, like most Arab countries, uh, for whom we in this 21st century have to find uh, useful, good uh, paying jobs. Uh, in order to build a future and a life. Um, so again, I want to thank you for having invited me uh, to uh, this uh, this venue, and uh, I'm be happy to address any questions you have in mind. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, you're quite right about <clears throat> emphasizing the many layers of uh, Iraq's history and its evolution, and uh, complex, uh, really beyond description or imagination. A uh, few Americans are aware that from June 67, uh, the last uh, Arab-Israeli war, when uh, Iraq and a number of other governments uh, uh, severed relations with the United States for the, its uh, uh, inordinate support for, for Israel that was occupying Arab lands, it was not the other way around. Uh, from that time until 19. 84, 17 years, uh, the number of Americans in Iraq were fewer than 20. Uh, I know this because of bringing delegations to Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. 
And these were the figures given by the Iraq Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the US Embassy in Baghdad. And compared with or contrasted with up until 1979, where the United States at one point had as many as 60,000 Americans living and working in Iran. So the imbalance, the asymmetry of uh, understanding of empirical awareness and appreciation uh, for the issues and challenges that the Iraqi people were facing th during that long period was abysmally low and reflected in the uh, ignorance coupled with a fair amount of arrogance and the way that America postured in its policies and its positions, its official actions and attitudes towards Iraq or Iraq's uh, government there. Uh, so this aspect of Iraq's complexity uh, needs to be chipped away at through this kind of discussion and conversation and dialogue that you're helping us with now. And I'll turn it to Colonel David DeRoche uh, to guide us into these areas uh, to enhance uh, awareness and appreciation and knowledge and understanding. Colonel DeRoche. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Yeah, when uh, people say American arrogance, they uh, immediately turn to me. So uh, I appreciate that. Let me start with our first question from the field, which is basically, Ambassador, I, I understand that, you know, you might be somewhat limited by your duties, but can you speak a bit about how U.S.-Iraqi relations have evolved from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? Is there something that jumps out at you that you can <clears throat> share with the group? What are your impressions? I'll give you, I'll give you numbers. So, uh, uh, as you know, uh, we're in a situation where we uh, uh, have to import a large amount of our gas, of gas to uh, fuel our uh, uh, energy uh, plants, uh, sorry, electricity plants. I think 40% of our electricity is generated by uh, Iranian gas. It's really a stupid way of doing things because at the same time, we are uh, flaring uh, more, uh, an equal amount of gas stupidly into the atmosphere, adding to, uh, you know, the uh, um, uh, 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 climate change and all that. Um, so uh, we, uh, we uh, during the Trump administration, we used to uh, get uh, waivers uh, because of the sanctions that the United States has imposed in Iran. We used to get waivers to uh, be able to import uh, uh, this uh, gas and, and to pay for it in ways that are specified. And so uh, uh, systematically, we'd get uh, very, very short uh, extensions, uh, or at one point, I think it was an extension uh, uh, for about just one month. Um, since, uh, the, uh, since the elections, I think uh, we're on a sort of a more level playing field, if you will, in the sense that uh, the uh, uh, sanctions, uh, uh, the waivers have been systematically constant and, and more generous. And of course, we are doing all we can to uh, uh, abide by, by, by the, by the uh, rules that have been set up. And at the same time, we are working uh, really hard to, uh, uh, like I said, stop flaring our gas. Uh, but you know, this is something that we're not only doing, uh, where, I mean, the, the main driver for this, that it makes economic sense and environmental sense to do that. Yeah, 
great. Um, could you speak a bit about the impact of the pandemic in Iraq, uh, uh, challenges it's raised, and how your government's dealing with it? I think we're we're doing okay. I mean, of course, Iraq suffered like all uh, Middle Eastern countries uh, very much with it. We were concerned in the early phases because uh, Iran was a local um, uh, epicenter, and uh, because they had these you know, strong ties with with China, and we had religious ceremonies uh, looming. And of course, when you participate in religious ceremonies, these are easily can transform into uh, super spreader events. And so at the time we had a very forceful uh, health minister who actually closed the border, went and pleaded with the Iraqi religious authorities who uh, understood the situation and, and actually curtailed uh, these uh, ceremonies. Uh, right now uh, in Iraq, I think the situation is, I don't wanna say completely under control. We still have you know, cases of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of COVID. Uh, as do most uh, countries in, in, uh, in the region. But uh, we're doing reasonably okay. Um, um, those that want vaccines do get them. If you go to Baghdad, you'll see a number of people wearing, uh, wearing um, masks, less so when you go to the countryside, but the countryside is, uh, you know, uh, uh, has a, uh, a population density that is much more sparse. So I, I think we're doing okay. And uh, in fact, I must say that we're very grateful for the support we got uh, from the international community and in particular from the United States. Uh, they uh, were the one of the first, actually, I think the first to send us testing equipment and uh, large numbers of uh, batches of, of vaccines. Great. Uh, before uh, we went uh, live, we were chatting about the uh, Institut du Monde Arabe in Paris and their exhibition on um, uh, Jewish culture in the Arab world. I was wondering if you could maybe, uh, you know, as, as you know, Baghdad is historically, and, and I didn't realize this until I was at the uh, Museum at the University of Tel Aviv 30 years ago, Baghdad is one of the greatest centers of Jewish learning historically. Uh, could you speak a bit about uh, uh, Judaism in Iraq and the status of it? Or well, anything to add? very, very sadly, uh, you know, the creation of the state of Israel robbed Iraq of its Jewish community. Um, I, I'm very for, privileged. I, as a child of eight years old, I was uh, a student in a Jewish parochial school, where in fact I started learning French. And I can tell you, uh, they made us work harder than uh, uh, at other places. Um, it was a really wonderful school. I, I, I keep, you know, um, uh, wonderful memories of uh, of that phase of my childhood. Um, uh, uh, Baghdad has a very had a very very vibrant. Uh, a Jewish community. Uh, in fact, uh, a Jewish community that had uh, resonances and, and outreach to the wider world. Uh, I was invited to dinner at the British ambassador's house. And so uh, I, I, I hate going somewhere for the first time empty handed. So I picked up a book I had in my library called The Sassoons. And the Sassoons are an Iraqi merchant family who, in the uh, I think 17th or 18th centuries, uh, branched out to uh, to India, then to China, then uh, went to the United Kingdom, and in fact were were, were ennobled uh, even before the Rothschilds. And if you have time, I, I suggest you pick up a book that came out last year 
called the Kings of Shanghai, uh, talking about the uh, um, rivalry between two Iraqi Jewish families, uh, the Sassoons and the Kaderis. And the, the, the title of the book is The Kings of Shanghai. That's, yeah, um, that's fantastic. And, and you know, yeah. also the Sassoons are most known uh, for people of my background, I guess, for Siegfried Sassoon, the uh, World War I poem who was uh, oh, descended uh, from Jewish background. So, so here's an anecdote. Uh, six or seven years ago, I was invited to the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. Wow. And, and uh, they, they held a wonderful event for us. And uh, the participating, you had an imam, a rabbi, and a, and a, and a priest. And at the buffet luncheon we had later, I uh, was looking for him with my tray, looking for a table. And I saw the rabbi sitting. So I went and sat next to him. And I asked him if he was the uh, chap Jewish chaplain of the British Armed Forces. And he replied in a very stentorian voice. He said, no, I am the grand rabbi of Great Britain. It was Lord Sachs, a very, very famous theologian. Wow. Wow, yeah. So I, 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 I then realized that who he was. So I told him, well, I'm, I'm the Iraqi ambassador uh, to the United Kingdom, to, to France, and I have a reason to reason to be here. And he said, what is that? And I said, Siegfried Sassoon. So <laughs> said, yeah. you win. That's that's yeah. uh, uh, in racquetball. We call that a killer shot. It's a, a shot against the oh. wall that hits perfectly and goes so low. It's unreturnable. That's uh, fantastic. Um, uh, a lot of times people speak about the challenges that Iraq faces internally, and we never yes. really get to focus at the fact that Iraq is a very, very useful state in external affairs. And uh, most recently, it, it, it's played a role in uh, this sort of nation, uh, uh, either a rapprochement or a detente uh, between the Gulf Cooperation Council states and Iran. Mm. Um, could you speak a bit about uh, the, I, I understand it's a sensitive issue and you, you may not be able to speak freely, but can you share with us something about Iraq's role, uh, you know, facilitating that dialogue and uh, inshallah mediation? Well, what I can tell you is we'd be very happy to play this role. Uh, in fact, I've, uh, I may have made this point uh, last time I was there, I was uh, with you. You know, it, uh, I, I like to think of, it, you know, Iraq as the uh, Switzerland of the Middle East. Uh, and this kind of thing that when I say to people, they kind of, you know, look at me strangely. Um, and my point is the following. Uh, if you look at Switzerland, uh, you know, what is known about it is that it is a neutral country. And the question then is, why is it neutral? Well, very simply because during the 17th and the 18th centuries, when, uh, uh, you know, most of the wars in Europe were either sectarian or ethnic, uh, Switzerland could not take sides in any of these because it is a, is, it is a country that is like Iraq, uh, you know, uh, mixed uh, from a sectarian point of view and mixed from an ethnic point of view with extensions uh, of their populations into the neighboring countries. This is exactly our situation. You know, we, we share uh, attributes uh, our populations with our neighbors to the north, to the south, to the east, uh, to, the, to the west. And uh, we cannot take part in any conflict between them because it would put a strain on our own population. And so the only uh, reasonable, rational, national policy that we can have is one of proactive neutrality, which has implications. It means that you have to be strong. You have to be um, uh, well-adjusted, if you will. And, and, and you have to be proactive. And, and we have been... Uh, 
not only because it's, it's, it's actually it's in, our, in our own interest. And may I remind you that, uh, for example, with regard to the uh, nuclear negotiations taking place between the P5 plus one and, and Iran, one of the rounds earlier on that in the process that led to the JCPOA uh, in 2012 took place in Baghdad. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people I remember in, in France uh, were uh, uh, had, had very low expectations, but in the end, you know, they came back and told me things went well. And you know, uh, one of the reasons was because we had two extraordinary gentlemen um, uh, heading the Iraqi delegation supporting them. One was Hoshar Zabari, a fantastic foreign minister, and the other is uh, Hussein Sharistani, who was a uh, a, who's a nuclear scientist and who spent 11 years in uh, in, uh, in Abu Ghraib prison because he did not want to work on Saddam's nuclear weapons. People call him the Iraqi Sakharov. Uh, so, uh, and, and uh, during his uh, you know last trip to the United States, uh, you know the Prime Minister was asked about that, and he actually said that we are engaged in these in these uh, uh, activities. We're trying to bring people together, and that we are. Uh, engaged in certainly more than one uh, bilateral process of rapprochement. And I expect this to continue. Great. Um, by the way, I want to remind people in the audience that you can send questions in by emailing them to questions at ncusar.org. So that's questions, ncusar, National Council, U.S. Arab Relations. .org. Um, could you speak a bit about the current uh, threat from Daesh uh, what you see, what the challenges are, and um, what's your prognosis? Um, well, the prognosis is that we're dealing with it. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, like I said, um, uh, you know, it, uh, Daesh was a proto-state. You know, they, uh, they levied taxes, they uh, controlled populations uh, because they controlled territory. And, uh, you know, what, uh, what happened is that we first uh, had to Take them away from, uh, take take that territory away from them. Uh, let me give you a, a, a few numbers that sort of illustrate this. If you recall, in early on, two thousand seven, we had this uh, you know surge that succeeded. That was actually whose successes success was critical uh, to uh, you know the evolution of political process in Iraq. Uh, at the time, I think there were more than hundred thousand uh, American troops in Baghdad. Um, American casualties in Iraq uh, in 2007 uh, came up to, I think, 900 killed in action, huge number. Uh, the Defense Department was spending um, maybe $300 million a day. Um, and uh, moreover, whenever, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a village would be uh, freed of its uh, insurgency uh, as soon as the American troops would leave, the insurgents would come back. If you fast forward to 2007, uh, the situation is different. Um, I was told that uh, in the Amer Iraqi and Syrian theaters of operation, uh, there were uh, less than 5,000 US troops. Uh, the expenditures of the US military in, in uh, that uh, theater was uh, of the order of $10 million, much huge difference. Uh, uh, I think uh, losses were much smaller. I mean, it's still uh, not to be neglected, but in the order of uh, 10 or 20, mostly by accident. And not a single square kilometer that was liberated uh, from ISIS was retaken by ISIS. And why is that? Uh, 
Well, it's because the Iraqis did the fighting. I mean, uh, people tend to forget this, but um, um, you know, tens of thousands of our young soldiers gave their lives for this. And so uh, the situation's different. Uh, we did uh, achieve a victory in, in a process that actually helped further unite us. Uh, at this point, uh, ISIS is still a threat with you know, sleeper cells with uh, roving bands in uh, sparsely populated areas, mostly around uh, the seams, so to speak, between uh, the, uh, 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 the lie between the regional government and the federal uh, uh, forces. And we're taking uh, you know, clear steps to, to address that. For example, we've stood up uh, joint um, uh, forces uh, regrouping the Peshmerga and, and federal forces, basically to monitor these, uh, these regions. Um, and we are improving our ISR and uh, other such uh, capabilities to address this issue better. Great. Um, we have a question from the audience. Uh, this is on climate change. Uh, uh, and this is something that honestly, I, I, I don't follow the issue as closely as I should. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed by my ignorance. The next uh, climate COP, which we just held in Glasgow, is going to be in Egypt in 2022. Yeah. And then in 2023, it's going to be in the UAE. So we've got two climate conferences in a row in the Middle East. Um, you know, what can we expect? And, uh, you know, what, what is Iraq looking for that, particularly if, you know, it looks as though decarbonization, moving away from hydrocarbons uh, becomes, you know, gains some traction? Well, um, uh, you know, we, uh, um, uh, Iraq doesn't need to rely entirely on oil and, and gas for its energy. The National uh, uh, Renewable Energies Laboratory, uh, as part of the Department of Energy, uh, came out with a, with, a, with a study that showed that Iraq has a potential for, I think, 600 gigawatts of electrical solar power and something like... Uh, a thousand or a thousand one hundred gigawatts of wind power. Now I knew about solar, but I had no idea about wind. And so uh, uh, we can tap into that. Uh, and uh, bear in mind that no matter what we do, uh, you know, uh, oil is uh, a precious commodity. It's uh, it could it should be used not as fuel, but rather as feedstock for industries. Uh, and I, I recently actually went down to. Uh, Florida to uh, visit a company uh, that had some break, groundbreaking uh, technologies that, that sought to take methane and uh, transform it uh, into acetylene, which is a, a, a product used in, in petrochemical industries, and uh, clean hydrogen without any carbon footprint. Now, hydrogen is one possibility to look into for uh, uh, you know uh, providing energy. Uh, from our hydrocarbons and uh, maintaining our uh, the use of uh, of, uh, of petrochemicals and uh, sorry of, of fossil fuels, um, there's much to be done. Um, like I said, Iraq is one of these countries that's you know damned if you are, damned if you don't, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. We're an oil producing country. We are subject to climate change, and so uh, I can tell you that uh, the Iraqi delegation and I was part of that uh, at. at uh, at uh, COP26 uh, was, was very, very active. Uh, incidentally, this is a topic that's close to my heart. I, many years ago, I used to work uh, for the Climate Change Secretariat and I participated as an employee of the or staff of the secretary into COP2, COP3, COP4. 
and attended two uh, conferences of the parties as um, an Iraqi delegate, COP10 in Buenos Aires and COP15 in Paris. And earlier, in fact, I had um, I actually pushed hard for Iraq to be a member of the of the uh, of the climate change regime, if you will, by adhering to the conventions. I must say that. We're a late starter in this. Uh, you know, Iraq is a uh, founding member of the United Nations, but um, uh, we uh, only adhered uh, to the environmental conventions that came out of the Rio uh, World Summit in 1992, only I think in 2009, so that we lost 17 years. Um, that's another thing we can pin to the uh, former regime's uh, way of governance. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to kind of uh, lump together some questions we've had from the audience um, and because mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's my job. Um, uh, obviously, you've had parliamentary elections, which, uh, you know, is great for Iraq. And I've got to tell you, you know, it's, it really shows uh, the, the contrast with the rest of the Arab world is is uh, uh, good for Iraq and disappointing for everybody else. Uh, but of course, uh, Muqtada Sadr, uh, emerged as one of the big victors mm-hmm. there. Could you talk about his role in and his use of personal diplomacy? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, what do we see uh, him going with the government? And what can we what can we expect, basically? I mean, the, the context of this is, you know, 15 years ago, the United States was trying to kill this guy. So, uh, you know, now it looks as though he's, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, one of the more responsible uh, or one of, you know, is somebody that I think uh, the West thinks they can work with. So, uh, you know, dispel some ignorance, please, and uh, share what you can. Well, the, uh, the evolution of the, uh, of the Sanders movement is really remarkable. Um, I'll give you a simple example. So if you were to look at the, uh, there's an actually an article, a really interesting article uh, written, uh, you can find on the uh, website of the Atlantic Council, uh, parsing through the results of the last elections. So if you look at the uh, number of votes, uh, there is a certain evolution, but it's not all that as radical as the kind of evolution you would see if you looked at the number of seats in parliament and the way uh, you know, the, uh, they're, they're, they're distributed prior and the previous elections and the current uh, new elections. Uh, and the reason, like I mentioned, was because there was a uh, change in the electoral law uh, and those that knew how to play it well were the ones who did best. And those that did best were the Saunders movement. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, they, uh, I think, got some like 700,000 votes globally. But with that, they managed to get um, 70 or more than 70 seats. And uh, because they maximized uh, through good party discipline, through good voter discipline, uh, through good outreach to their uh, sympathizers, um, uh, every single vote counted. Uh, Whereas the um, um, various candidates that emerged, for example, out of the protest movement that took place in, uh, that came out in 2000, in uh, October, 2019, I think garnered uh, twice as many votes or perhaps even more but didn't come up with uh, more than 20 uh, seats in parliament. Why? Because they were all over the place, uh, uncoordinated. Un- un- and, and in fact, I was told that the uh, Sadrists developed an app which you could download and which would tell you whom to vote for depending on where you lived. 
Um, so that's good politics, you know, and uh, and I think it's a it's a it's an evolution in the right direction. Yeah, good question, or good good answer, sir. Thank you. So our next question, also coming from the audience, uh, is about the migration of Kurds to Europe in light of you know corruption, economic problems, and governance in the uh, Kurdish region. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about uh, the view from Baghdad of the sort of. Uh, semi-autonomous Kurdish region and how relations work with the central government? Well, this is not news to me. Uh, if you recall the first phase of the um, um, of this migration uh, happened about 2015, where you had a large number of people leave, you know, with the southern uh, coast, coast of the, you know, the, the Mediterranean, go up north, and then trickle down through Turkey into into Europe. Um, uh, some of my colleagues in uh, uh, in Serbia and Italy actually had to uh, go and you know recover bodies of Iraqis who had gone uh, and, and and drowned. Um, I was posted to France at the time, and uh, Iraqi um, uh, immigrants tend to avoid France because we don't have much of an Iraqi population there, except those that seek to go to the UK, because there we have a large uh, population and uh, with links. And if you recall, just uh, recently, uh, I think uh, 27 uh, poor immigrants drowned in the uh, North Sea, uh, the Channel, sorry, tragic. Um, so uh, there were in, in France on, on, uh, near the coast, near, near the access to the tunnel uh, uh, that goes under, under the, the, the channel, um, two camps. One was called the Jungle near Calais, grouping about 5,000 people and uh, from all sorts of origins. You had Turks, you had Iraqis, you had um, Afghans, a uh, whole uh, uh, mixture. And then you had another one near near Dunkirk, which uh, consists of about a thousand people, practically all the Iraqis, I think practically all from one region of, of, of Kurdistan. And uh, some of them actually had to go back to uh, to Iraq, and so they came to the to the embassy to ask for visas. So I talked to them, and I um, I asked them, "Why are you leaving?" In my experience, you know. Kurds are they love their land. It's a beautiful part of the country, actually. What's not to love? But they were leaving, and my question was why. And so I I went to that camp and, and met with them. And I took with me two of my colleagues, in fact, who uh, were Kurdish, so they could speak directly with uh, with with, uh, with those refugees. And uh, they actually echoed the same kind of sentiment. Uh, that uh, we heard in the protests that took place in 2019 in Iraq. They said to me, you know, I, I don't feel it's my country anymore. Um, I, uh, I, uh, in, in Baghdad, the protest movement said, you know, we want a country. So there's a, a lot of similarity there. And I think uh, one of the main reasons is that the Iraqi government has failed to enable, you know, the private sector to provide uh, jobs for these people, for these young people who are, you know, full of potential, full of creativity, but they, 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 they run into a wall. And so uh, what happens is that they fall victims. Uh, and I think 
we need a really sustained uh, and a strongly sustained effort uh, on an international level uh, to address those uh, I mean, uh, terrible um, smugglers who are in fact, uh, this is a new kind of you know, slave trade. Uh, they're, 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 these are people who are who are thriving on the misery of others, uh, you know, giving them lies and 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 taking their, um, you know, we, we saw that in uh, not only in, in uh, you know uh, 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 recently with discussions, with, I think it was reported by uh, uh, refugees who were. Uh, were brought back from uh, from the borders of Ukraine with uh, with the EU. Um, I think we need to have a sustained effort to uh, get these guys and prosecute them. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, there's an agreement on that. And you know, one of the challenges of of human smuggling and trafficking is is that the people who seem to suffer most are are the victims, yes. and they seem to be the ones who suffer most at the hands of border controls, border crossing areas. And uh, the guys who are getting rich on this um, are just incredibly elusive. Well, let's shift to a, a more cheerful note. Um, you know, a real bright spot this year in Iraq is uh, the Papal visit. I mean, you know, I, I, I honestly, you know, it was an open question whether I'd live long enough to, to see that. Could you speak about the significance of that, what it means for Iraq? And, you know, is there any lasting impact of it? Well, you know, uh, for, for us, Iraq is not Iraq without its minorities. Uh, you know, it would, it, would lose, it would lose its essence. And so, um, as was, um, I mean, I, this was a big deal. Uh, a huge, huge event. Um, in fact, when it happened, I wanted to uh, uh, note this here. So I invited to dinner the Argentinian ambassador, the uh, Italian ambassador, uh, the representative uh, Ayatollah Sistani uh, in Washington, D.C., and also, uh, uh, you know, the Archbishop of Washington, Cardinal Gregory. And uh, I think the visit was summarized by the Italian ambassador, uh, Mauricio, uh, uh, Ambassador Verica, who... Uh, who said that every single papal visit is important, but this one is truly historic, and it is. And I think, uh, to me, one of the most remarkable uh, uh, events uh, of the last, the last decade, of this decade, in fact, maybe this century, is, is the meeting between the Pope and, and Ayatollah Sistani. Um, um, and it's an inspiration, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, finally, uh, we're we're running out of time, and so uh, I want to I want to uh, just a question that's always intrigued me about you, and I'm embarrassed that I haven't raised it before. But you're a, a world class physicist. Not a world class. Uh, physicist. What brought you into diplomacy? Uh, how 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 did your long strange journey come to this point? And uh, what what you know a lot of a lot of our audience at NC USA are are students. Uh, what could they learn from that? Um, look, I'm I'm an I'm an Iraqi exile. Okay, uh, like like many Iraqi exiles, I suffer from survivor guilt. Um, I have classmates who were killed uh, for no reason, uh, you know. And so, uh, when you find yourself in a situation where you can do something about this, uh, you do. You're forced to. Um, it wasn't always possible. I mean, my father was actually a 
far more prominent diplomat than I ever will be. Uh, and so I, I really shunned that path and I studied physics because I like physics, you know. But throughout my, my physics career, I was, um, you know, focusing on, on, on what was happening in Iraq. And I remember I, you know, the eve of my uh, final quantum physics exam, actually, I stayed, stand up, stayed up at night listening to the news uh, because that was the onset of the Iran-Iraq war. And needless to tell you, I, I flunked that exam. Um, but, and, and for, for a very long period, you know, you, you talk about uh, Saddam and it would fall on deaf ears in the West mm -hmm. uh, uh, until uh, he invaded Kuwait. Yeah. And so uh, we saw a chance to do something about this. That's when I really began, began, began to become, you know, polit politically active. I, uh, in fact, uh, I met Leif Kuba, who uh, uh, eventually became the spokesperson of the Iraqi government in 2005, 2006, uh, who was, I, uh, who's, who, whose voice I had heard on, on the BBC. He came to give a talk at Harvard, uh, sorry, at, at the Fletcher School. No, let me be precise, at Tufts University in, uh, in March of 91. And I went to see him and I said, look, how can I help you? And he said, uh, uh, help me reach out to the media. So I said, okay. So I called up a whole bunch of people uh, from, you remember those uh, old phone books, I picked one up and I wrote down the numbers and I called them and I took him, uh, took Leith uh, together with a colleague who now is our ambassador to, uh, to Kuwait, uh, Manhattan Safi. And we, we did all the, all the round of all the local TV news stations and we had, we had paid it with a wonderful journalist uh, called Chris Lydon, who presented the local news on the, on, at WGBH. And at the end of the interview, he said, you know, how can I help you? And I said, well, could you help us go national? And so he said, okay. So he calls up the McNeil, what was then the McNeil Lehrer News Hour. And uh, the following day, Leith was on McNeil Lehrer News Hour. And that's how I started getting involved in politics. Eventually I uh, came with uh, four other Iraqis to meet with the State Department. My first uh, entry into the uh, State Department was in, uh, on the 3rd of April, 1991. We met with John Kelly, who's Assistant Secretary of State. And our argument was, you really have, you can't let, you can't leave Saddam in power because if he does, uh, he will slaughter people. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I think uh, that meeting was a, public relations exercise to, as was quoted, as was said, stated by an official quoted in the New York Times, uh, it was, you know, to show that we cared. Um, so we left, we were completely dejected, but then what, what changed the equation was the fact that there were those, you know, tens of hundreds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of refugees in Turkey, in the cold, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the press scooped in. Uh, we had reports on CNN, on CBS News, and uh, President Bush uh, sent uh, Secretary Baker, who, from his plane, even before he uh, landed, called the president and said, "You have to do something about it." And that's how Operation Provide Comfort started. And so, uh, after that, I got involved in human rights activists uh, activism, precisely because, and 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 I'm driven to do it precisely because we could. And the people in Iraq couldn't. It's uh, one expression of, you know, uh, survivor guilt. And here I am. 
That's great. Well, um, I can't imagine a better ending for a, a seminar than discussing survivor guilt uh, right after the papal visit. Um, uh, look, Iraq is a, is a land of uh, great promise, and uh, it is slowly making steps to emerge and assume its rightful place uh, among the sovereign uh, uh, nations of the world. So let's, uh, we're out of time, but I want to thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador, for this uh, exceedingly uh, frank and uh, open discussion and for your willingness to engage on a broad range of issues. And uh, let me hand it back over to Dr. Anthony for the closing. Thank you, uh, Colonel DeRoche and Mr. Ambassador. Um, I love the concept of uh, survival guilt, and you're not alone. You're not the first, uh, by no means the last in this regard. <clears throat> in the last several months, Americans have watched as another people in the region uh, to your east uh, in Afghanistan uh, were evacuated en masse. Uh, the numbers may be disputed, but more than 100,000, 120,000, some say, were evacuated in the space of around uh, three weeks. Uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, in, in uh, recorded human history. Uh, and we flash backwards in the rearview mirror uh, to Iraq uh, on the invasion of your country and occupation of it uh, within a matter of weeks, no longer than months. The figures that stick in one's mind are some 2 million external refugees fled uh, Iraq, uh, 1.3 million uh, to Syria. Uh, not one of them with a visa, family is family, blood is blood, kin is kin, clan is clan, tribe is tribe. Uh, several hundred thousand to Jordan and the rest uh, here and there, uh, Beirut and Dubai uh, and elsewhere. Uh, but as late as some three years after the US-led invasion of Iraq, uh, the figures that stick in my mind were no more than 28,000 Iraqis had been allowed into the United States. And we're talking about individuals who were deemed by many as collaborators uh, with the intruding, invading uh, foreign force that was not Arab, that was not Muslim, did not speak the language of the people uh, that it had invaded and occupied. Uh, those numbers look like a typographical error. Could you comment uh, on the present situation? How many Iraqis uh, would you estimate low high figures are resettled, relocated to the United States effectively or otherwise. And uh, where are the concentrations? We used to hear that the large Chaldean Christian Iraqi communities in Michigan and Minnesota and North Central uh, United uh, States. Um, could you comment on this people to people aspect? that tragedy, that traumatic component of what has happened that is like a river yet to run its course. Well, Dr. Anthony, the uh, really interesting thing is that uh, even those that come as refugees fleeing Iraq for safety, uh, the overwhelming majority of them want to retain uh, you know, relationships with Iraq. Many of them, for example, have uh, uh, 
family still there and uh, assets and maybe a, a retirement salary. So they retain contacts with the consulate. Uh, so uh, part of our work is to uh, reach out to this community and, uh, you know, we maintain an open door. I have to tell you that, um, you know, throughout the 1980s and the 1990s, Iraqis in exile were very, very fearful of, of Iraqi embassies. It's no longer the case, trust me. <laughs> yes. um, but uh, in our out outreach, we actually don't differentiate between those that came earlier or those, those that came later or the reason which they left Iraq, you know, the to us, they're Iraqi citizens, and we have to uh, provide, uh, you know, consular services to them on an, on a, on a level, level, uh, on a, in, a, in an equal, as equal as possible. And so, um, uh, and we have to have, we have to reach out to them because every now and then we conduct elections. Now, last elections, um, uh, we did not have out of country voting for, you know, various economic reasons. Uh, but previous rounds of elections, we had electoral uh, uh, stations overseas. And uh, the, uh, in, in 2000, I think in, in 18, um, the uh, Independent Electoral Commission decided to open up 18 uh, polling stations in the United States. And so at the time I said, uh, let's put them where the Iraqi com community lies. And so what I did is I called up the uh, Census Bureau to ask them whether they had any information on concentrations of Iraqis. And they said, well, you know, we, we do have within our uh, numbers or data information on uh, pe where people were born. And so based on their statistics, we know that there are about 260 or so slightly over a quarter of a million uh, natives of Iraq living in the United States. And so if you take that and factor in uh, uh, you know, several generations and second generation, third generation. I think we have uh, maybe in excess of a million Iraqis uh, in, in the United States. Uh, where do they, where are they concentrated? Well, uh, the, the data that uh, you can get from the Census Bureau uh, gives you, provides you information down to the county level. And that's really important for us because it allows us to uh, better serve this community. So we can target, for example, if we do uh, a consular um, mission to go and provide them with services, we'll go to where they're located. The largest concentrations, as you can imagine, are near Detroit and uh, in Southern California. Um, essentially, they started out as being Chaldeans, but now the communities there are quite mixed. We have a very large community of uh, Kurds in Tennessee. Um, um, Nebraska actually stands out because it has a large community of uh, Yazidis. And in fact, it's, it's an important community. It's uh, the largest presence of communities outside of, the, uh, outside of Iraq. And the only one that has a cemetery that is consecrated according to their faith. Uh, we have a very large community of uh, Mandaeans in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I don't know why they went to Worcester, but uh, tradition has it. <laughs> a, a, a very, a, a very prominent Mandaean, uh, Doctor Jabal Abdullah, who was head of the, who was head of the uh, Baghdad University. Hey, how you doing? Had gone to MIT to complete his PhD in atmospheric physics, so maybe they they, they followed in his in his footsteps. So we do have a large large community of Iraqis, and uh, you can you can tell that by looking at your local press 
uh, whenever they write about the opening of uh, Iraqi restaurants, uh, I think they'll prove quite popular. There, there are uh, quite a few similarities to draw between you know, the uh, Iraqi immigrant experience and the uh, Vietnamese immigrant experience. Uh, and also with the, with the fact that it, as in Vietnam, you have had a large number of American servicemen cycle through Iraq. And the uh, point that I'd like to uh, stress here is that if you look at the relationships between the United States and Vietnam uh, in terms of economics, in terms of exchanges, they're absolutely uh, you know, sky high. And uh, this is an example for us uh, to emulate. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, uh, Colonel DeRoche. Uh, this has been uh, what we like to sometimes refer to as a cerebral massage. Uh, we're, we're the better informed, sir. We're the more insightful, more knowledgeable, more understanding, more clear in our analysis. Uh, thanks to you. We're in your debt, sir. All the best to everyone. I am in yours. Thank you and God bless you.